Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. It's May 17th, 2018, and on this week's show, The Women Giving the Finger, or the Feet, to the Old Guard of Can, Spike Lee's Oscar Contender, The Best Cloud Storage for Video Editing, The Monitor Company Trying to Conquer 8K Global Shutter Cameras, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and weekly words of wisdom. from a wet and rainy downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films, and I thought I'd just kick off with the weather report there since I know how eagerly you've all been anticipating it. Yeah, it's definitely delayed our flight to Cannes. We're still trying to get there for closing (laughs) night, and unfortunately the rain is now keeping us here for another day at least. Yes, speaking of Cannes, we can't stop talking about it for the past couple of weeks, which were sort of leading up to the renowned event. But now that it's almost at an end, and of course we're trying to get on those planes, uh, we have a lot of news to share. Some of it is a little on the gossipier side, like how over 100 audience members walked out of Lars von Trier's new serial killer horror, The House That Jack Built, or how K-Stew hit the notoriously rule-bound red carpet in bare feet in honor of both female filmmakers and presumably comfort. I was. I just want to say for like, who someone someone tweeted. Uh, I think it was Nigel Smith, who I used to work with at IndieWire, who also worked at the Guardian for a while. But he was like, "How do you walk out? What, like, what are you expecting in a Lars Van Trier movie about a serial killer that like you're gonna walk out in disgust from? Like, this is a dude who made Antichrist. Like." Fair enough. There are also some really hilarious tweets from people that were on the ground. Um, but I've read some some actually pretty thoughtful critiques. And I don't know, you know, if our listeners know, you guys know, I'm not that into film criticism. I think it's like a little bit bs But I've read some really interesting critiques of people who were even fans of Von Trier's and said this, he just crossed the line this time. Like this movie just didn't need to exist. <laughs> I'm sure like that's a valid point, too. But you know, it, feel, yeah, it feels like a rite of passage to walk out of your first Cannes film. I feel like if you go to Cannes, you have to walk out of at least one film in a huff. All right. So when we go this weekend. For we'll, one film, we're we'll walking out of it. Definitely walk out of that one film. I also um, just want to say that like Cannes seems to have always have like the raciest movies or like the most controversial movies in that sense where like, you know, Gaspar Noe always premieres there and all, he just came out with a movie that sounds awesome and is getting like unanimous appraise from people the dude who did love which is was a 3d three-hour softcore porn flick basically uh that was a couple years ago at can <laughs> yeah i mean i think they're you know they still are from the auteur school like they definitely support the auteurs of the world um and so many films play there that it's kind of you know it's got a little bit of everything probably Um, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I will say that not all the news on the red carpet was about fashion this year. Um, Yes, stylish jurors Kate Blanchett and Ava DuVernay walked it. But for the premiere of Eva Hassan's Girls of the Sun, they walked it arm in arm with 80 other women, including director Agnes Varda, one of only two women to have ever been awarded the Palme d'Or. And at the end of the carpet, the entire group mounted the famous can stairs and turned to face the crowd. They gave a statement. And there were exactly 82 women on the stairs for a reason. It's the number of films by female directors that have premiered in competition at Cannes in its 71-year history. 82. 
How many male directors have premiered in competition in that same period? 1,645. Yep. (laughs) That's over 20 male-directed films for every one directed by a woman. Uh, And that's just playing in competition, not award winners. So this red carpet protest wasn't just a stunt. The group behind it is called 5050 by 2020, meaning 5050 gender equality in the French film industry by the year 2020. They also created a document called the Programming Pledge for Parity and Inclusion in Cinema Festivals, a nice tidy title there, which was signed publicly on Monday by Cannes Artistic Director Terry Frameau and the directors of other festival sections. The pledge contains concrete steps for Cannes, like pushing for parity on their executive boards and compiling statistics on the gender of filmmakers and key crew members for all films submitted to the festival. I wish it was just the Programming Pledge Inclusion Cinema, because then it could be PPIC. Pipik. Do you know what that means? ICPP? No. <laughs> Pipik means belly button in Yiddish. Ah. Oh, the Pipik Pledge. I'm signing today. <laughs> anyway, I have to say this feels like a huge leap from my first time talking about Cannes on the podcast only a couple years ago when the, quote, big story was women being turned away from the Palais screenings for daring to wear flats instead of mandatory heels on the red carpet. Things are really changing as we keep talking about. Is that something that's no longer a thing? Can women wear other shoes now or is it still the same i mean k Stu went barefoot and they let her in but i don't know if that's going to be the rule of the land from now on um as far as you know getting back to some of the films in the festival it's funny you mentioned that uh that 3d softcore porn because <laughs> it the, always is yeah well <laughs> we like to talk about that but uh the one this year that sounds most ripe for a no film school how did you do that interview is chinese director Gon's long day's journey into night which features a 55-minute long take shot entirely in 3D. We will try to get a look at that as soon as we can and get you some of the technical details. Sounds pretty interesting. I assume this is not related to the Eugene O'Neill five-hour play, Long Day's Journey in Tonight. Entirely unrelated, but also pretty lengthy. Okay, exactly. Blue is the Warmest Color is another movie that was like super sexual that that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes a few years ago. Well, controversial and sexual are two different things. I mean, the French are definitely known for their sexy times. For sure. (laughs) <laughs> oh, la, la. That's why we're going. <laughs> Meanwhile, John, this one's about you. Mm-hmm. You sent a good luck last week to your college classmate Alden Ehrenreich for the can premiere of his major role as Han Solo in Solo, especially after stories of how troubled the production had been. And I have to say to our listeners, we should all hope for good luck from John, because apparently it works wonders. Solo got a rare standing ovation at the festival, Actually, my friend Uri Aviv, who runs Utopia, Israel's international sci-fi and fantastic genre film festival, was there, and he said it was the best Star Wars since Return of the Jedi. So we'll all be able to judge for ourselves when it hits U.S. theaters in a couple weeks. Did you hear anything from your buddy Alden? No, I no, I don't talk to him anymore, but I watched like a Jimmy Kimmel interview that he did. And the clip that they played before the interview, I was like, oh, okay, wait, this is actually, he's he's doing okay in this. I haven't seen him actually act like anything in any of the trailers. It's just been a whole bunch of, you know, jumping around in space, sort of Chewbacca moaning and stuff like that. 3D porn kind of thing. Yeah, but it, it looked good. I think, like, overall what I've been hearing is, you know, once you get past the fact that he's not Harrison Ford, uh, that you actually, like, buy into it and he's pretty good. So, um, yeah. And speaking of which, Chewbacca was on the red carpet. Chewbacca premiere. and the guy that? who played Did he Chewbacca. have to wear heels? Uh, he didn't wear anything. Oh, Chewbacca wow. went strictly um, 
full. Well, he was wearing Wookie. a belt across his. Uh, oh, that's true. You know. Boy, those French really are risque. It kept up a lot of things. Another film that got a big old standing O at Cannes is Spike Lee's Black Klansman, based on the true story of a black detective who infiltrated the KKK. And it's played by Denzel Washington's son, John David Washington, who I didn't even know was an actor. Spike Lee gave an incendiary press conference that went straight after President Trump and brought the institutionalized racism theme of his movie into modern times. The movie, which screened in competition and is produced by the Get Out team, Jordan Peele and Josh Bloom, is already getting Oscar buzz. And I mention that because it brings me to an interesting take I read in IndieWire by Ann Thompson about Focus Features and its new strategy. Focus, which is the independent wing of Universal, brought Spike Lee's movie to Cannes and is planning an August release for the film. Now, traditionally, that would have meant the studio didn't really intend it as an Oscar contender. But just like everything else in the industry, conventional wisdom around this is changing. After all, Oscar winner Get Out premiered in theaters in February and then even had a brief second theatrical run after it was nominated. I really appreciated some of the words that Focus Features' newish chairman, Peter Kujowski, shared about this. He said, quote, We as an industry, and particularly the specialty sector, in a very short-sighted way have allowed ourselves to be dominated by a belief where the fall season is the only time when you can release your quote-unquote Oscar movies. If the movie's powerful, well-told, and great enough to emerge as an Oscar contender, it can do that from any time of year, end quote. Now, Focus came into Cannes with Black Klansmen, but the company's big news from the ground is that it beat out Netflix in a bidding war for Oscar Verhati's Everybody Knows, which is the likely Spanish-language Oscar contender this year. This announcement was the beginning of a slew of acquisition news, as Cannes is truly the most dominant global marketplace for films, and we heard about a lot more acquisitions coming out of there than we have from any other festival we've been to in recent times. So, Eric... What do you have to share with us about that? Absolutely. So there were a ton of acquisitions. Uh, Some of the major ones that we'll note here, um, we're talking about Gaspar Noé. A24 has acquired the latest film from him, which is called Climax, which, you know, makes sense, I'm I'm sure. Uh, Do you know what that's about? It definitely sounds like a 3D porn. I don't totally know. So it's not, yeah, it's actually like less, like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say it's less sexually oriented, but it's less like sexual than love and uh, maybe even enter the void. But it's about um, a group of like dancers, French dancers who are at this party uh, at like a discotheque or something. And then everyone starts to turn into like vampires or zombies. So it's like a horror dance movie. (laughs) It's like let the right one boogie. That's that would have been a good title. Uh, so that, that'll that'll be coming out soon enough. A24 actually feels like the right kind of distributor for that. For sure. Neon has picked up Border from the Uncertain Regard section from the Danish-Iranian director Ali Abbasi. And it's actually based on a novella, which was written by uh, the Let the Right One In author. Netflix has purchased for $30 million the foreign animated title Next Gen, which marks the feature directorial debut of animation and VFX veterans Kevin R. Adams and Joe Cassander and features voice work for the American version that will be coming out uh, from Michael Pena, Jason Sudeikis, David Cross, Katana Turnbull, and Constance Wu, and Kino Lorber. Wait, holy moly. First of all, that's yeah. a lot of money. And 30 secondly, million. What does that mean? They bought the title in its original language, and that will play on Netflix, and they're going to redub the entire thing. That's what I believe, yeah. In English, and that will play on Netflix? Yes, with the Americanized, English-speaking cast putting over it. Now, Interesting. Yeah, I was trying to do more inform- look for more information regarding what this property is, because $30 million for this is 
extremely substantial. Uh, and there is apparently a history with the source material that is more marketable worldwide, apparently. Um, and there was a bidding war for this as well, but $30 million seems. What's the movie about? Yeah, who, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in finding out more about it, but I don't know if it's my kind of thing, but we'll see. Uh, also, Kino Lorber purchased theatrical rights to Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book, which is the latest cinema What's It from the 87-year-old Rabble Rouser. I think that's a fair way to describe him. Uh, the pairing between filmmaker and distributor makes sense, as Kino Lorber previously released Godard's Goodbye to Language three years ago. And the image book is going to be released in early 2019, which I assume that means it's going to be playing at Toronto and maybe the New York Film Festival, and it'll be coming out theatrically next year. Uh, Godard had an interesting press conference, which was done via FaceTime on a phone. So it wasn't like a typical Skype Q&A where it's projected onto a screen. It was literally the moderator holding up a phone, a cell, an iPhone, and his face was on it. And journalists came up to the phone and, and asked him a question. Get out of here. That's crazy. Yeah, he did. Didn't you write that up on the site? I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some cool quotes that are very Godardian in their interesting vagueness. Um <laughs> Of course, certain canned titles already mentioned, such as The House That Jack Built and Black Klansman and Solo, arrived at the festival with a distributor already in place and will be coming out soon here in the States, as will the latest from Vim Vendors, which is Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, which premiered at the festival, I believe, two or three days ago and will be opening in limited release via Focus uh, this weekend. Uh, and I I'm, saw the film the other day. I'm going to be speaking with Mr. Wenders on Friday. You're a little nervous. If anybody has any questions you'd like to, uh, me to ask, you know what to do. Just tweet at me, and uh, maybe maybe we'll do it. I'm going to do a little uh, curation from the tweeters out there about this. This is exciting. I think this is your biggest No Film School interview so far. I think they're all very important, and you know, I just don't want to place anyone above anyone else. Fine. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Amen. So we've got some coverage from Cannes, including what will be Eric's interview and a survey of 28 Cannes filmmakers weighing in on the theatrical versus streaming debate and a panel about filmmaking in the blockchain. So we will link to all of those in this week's podcast post. And before we move into tech and gear news, a very brief update on net neutrality. By the time you hear this, the U.S. Senate will have had a vote to overturn the overturning of the net neutrality rules that stop corporations from having full control over the Internet. It's expected to narrowly pass because a Republican voter has defected to join the Democratic senators in this cause. And then, well, things stay pretty much the same because the vote will next be sent to the House of Representatives, where opponents of net neutrality are still in control. But here's why it's significant. Here in the U.S., we have midterm elections coming up, and this vote push means that Democrats are going to be holding up this issue as one of their campaign causes. And if they win back a majority in the Congress during the midterms, net neutrality might have a chance to survive after all. As always, we will keep you posted. And in the meantime, here's our friend Charles Hain with some tech and gear news. Hey, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with the tech and gear news for you this week. Our top story this week is a small update, but it's one of those small updates that has the potential to lead to like big time savings when it matters to you the most, which is on set. So there are a lot of download applications out there. There's some high-end ones for super pro DITs, but there's a really popular one for like sort of the indie, not a full-time DIT, sort of one mule team kind of person, and that's this app called Hedge. Um, which allows not only for like super fast downloads for both Mac and Windows, it allows you to create multiple checksum verified copies of your media with a lot of confidence. Now, this is obviously something you want to spread across multiple hard drives. 
having two copies of your media on one drive does not offer you any backup if that drive dies. You want to put multiple checksum verified copies of your media on two or three drives and then split them up to separate states if possible. So if a meteor burns down Oklahoma, you still have your media over there in Illinois. Now, Hedge has a new update with this great feature which automatically avoids redundancy on an individual hard drive. So let's say you shoot something on a card and then you download it and then you keep shooting but you forget to format. Now this should never happen but let's be honest, we have all done it. Mistakes are a thing. So you keep shooting, you wanna download that card what you would have to do in the past is you have to individually copy those files one at a time to make sure you're not making duplicate copies of the media you already copied hours earlier. Or, to be safe, you copy the whole card again, which means you're copying some media twice, which wastes time and hard drive space. It is very annoying. So, with this new feature, Hedge automatically double checks for redundancy and is like, oh, you've already downloaded that shot. And I know it's that shot because I check all of these five things to make sure it's created at the same time and it's the same media size and the same format. You've already downloaded it. I don't need to download it again, which is going to save you hard drive space. It's going to save you time on set. It's going to make your life a little easier. And it's totally something which is worth checking out. Up next, Fujifilm has added F-Log internal recording to the X-T2. Uh, previously, for the X-T2, if you wanted log recording, you had to go out to like an external recorder like an Atomos. And in February, they came out with a new camera, the X-H1, which does internal F-Log, which was a great reason for many people to consider upgrading. Only like three months later, internal F-Log has come to the X-T2, which is kind of amazing. Now, there's still reasons to upgrade to the X-H1. There's the image stabilization, which is fantastic. There's the top-mounted monitor. There's a whole bunch of stuff. But honestly, having internal F-Log X-T2 is a really nice thing for Fujifilm to have done to, like, bring that feature to cameras down the line once they've figured out how to make it work. It's like good customer service. It's very classy. As to why you might want internal uh, F-Log, let's say you're on a job where you're out there with an Atomos and you're recording F-Log, but then you need to do like a handheld shot or a running guide shot or something where you won't have the Atomos hooked up. I think it's really important to be able to have that F-Log internal for those occasional shots, even if you're already working with an external recorder. And then again, if you're working without an external recorder, internal F-Log, even better. So very cool, nice work, Fuji. Our last bit of gear news this week comes from Cinemartin, a Spanish company best known for their exceptionally affordable, sometimes under $100 monitors. They have made the leap from under $100 monitors to the next logical step, which is an 8K global shutter VistaVision camera. Huh? Uh, all right. So the original Red One back in 2007 seemed equally confusing. A no-name company with no history, making a camera that's going to shoot 4K to hard drives. In 2006, 2007, that seemed insane. It seemed like vaporware. People th thought it would never happen. So I think everybody in the film industry has really learned after Red came out with a camera and successfully changed a lot of the industry. I think film people are like, oh, well, maybe sometimes vaporware is a real thing. And what I'm about to say was also true of Red, but like none of the big players have an 8K full-frame VistaVision global shutter camera out. And Cena Martin is saying it'll be out this fall. Now, we should be very clear here. A camera is a totally different beast than a light or a monitor, not just because it's way more complicated to make it. It's also the complications of supporting it. So like Red, when they first launched, had tons of issues with support and repair and online forums. And eventually they fixed it by hiring a lot of customer service people and opening stores and the Red Studios and 
they have a whole animal now to support these projects because, frankly, you need it for a camera. Um, because if I'm on a shoot and the monitor dies and a light dies, no big deal. You have other lights. You have other monitors. When your camera dies, the shoot is over. Dunzo. Finished. Unless you can afford a backup camera, which most of us can't. So it's super important that, like, there's a whole infrastructure to support the camera and maintain the camera. And if it's wrong, send it in to get fixed and maybe there's a loner. Right now, we're watching Kinefinity, who's been around for a couple years with a camera that's been out in the wild and people have shot with it and it produces beautiful stuff. But they're having trouble really building market share because they don't have that sales infrastructure and customer support yet. Um, And that's making it difficult for them to really grow. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Cinema Martin, if they can get their customer service team together, if they can get repair together, and the camera all comes out. Because it's a different market now than it was in 2006, 2007. When Red came out, it was the only animal. But now this camera's going to come out. But there's the Red Monstro 8K, which is a similar sensor size, not a global shutter, um, from a camera with a support infrastructure. And by next year, the year after, I think we'll see more of that. So it's going to be interesting. Um, I bet some of you will end up giving a roll of the dice on this because we have a lot of indie users who like to roll the dice on new stuff. I'm excited to see how it goes. Um, but it's, it's going to be a new product, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all works out. But if you're willing to be patient with a company as it grows, 8K Global Shutter VistaVision, if it comes at, like, equivalent Cinemartin prices, could tick a lot of boxes for people. Oh, and its name? You can call it Fran. And I'm back with Ask No Film School. This week, Alex Phillips asked, which cloud storage backup do you use for video editing? I lost a hard drive to mechanical failure, and now I'm super paranoid about backing up my short films. What's the cheapest, easiest cloud backup solution you guys have found for a large amount of video source files? So, Alex, sorry you lost your drive. My usual advice on hard drives is that you should assume they're going to fail. By default, any hard drive I have, I assume it will die. If you back up properly, dropping a hard drive in it, shattering to pieces, should feel more like a hassle, like, ah, now i got to go get my backups out of the closet, and it shouldn't feel like the world is ending. So a good backup solution is built around LOCKS, which stands for Lots of Copies Keep Stuff Safe, and you should have lots of copies on multiple hard drives. I use a toaster, like the one from OWC, and then these cheap-ass bare hard drives that are as low as like 100 bucks for 4 terabytes. Because hard drives are going to fail, so don't trust one. Put it on multiple drives. After that, for small stuff, Dropbox is great. But if you have a lot of dailies, like if you have four terabytes of dailies you want to save, you should really start looking at something like Amazon Glacier. It's hands down the cheapest way to back up your data online. So I have all my personal work on two local hard drives. One is in a fireproof safe in my office. The other is in a fireproof safe in a storage facility. And then I also keep a copy on Glacier. Um, Glacier is great because they will also, if you have big media that you don't want to upload because it'll take a month, they'll ship you a hard drive. You put it on the hard drive and then ship it back. Glacier takes a little, like, learning to use. It's designed more for, like, professional developers and it's not really designed for filmmakers. But there's a couple people, Cloudberry and a few other apps that make nice front ends for Glacier. And I think I uploaded 500 gigabytes of stuff over, like, a week. Um, so I didn't do the snowball. But you can also do the snowball. They ship you a hard drive. You fill the hard drive up, ship it back. Um, stuff like Vimeo and YouTube are great release formats, but I would try and avoid using them as like your backup safety copy since it's web compression. And like neither of those companies look like they're going out of business, but companies do go out of business. Uh, good luck. I hope the next time your drive fails, it doesn't have anything valuable on it because you've got it all backed up in other places. 
See you all next week. And now onto some movies that you can see this week. On Netflix, you can check out Small Town Crime on May 19th. This is a movie I saw back at South by Southwest in 2017. It's written and directed by a pair of brothers named Esham and Ian Nelms. They come from humble beginnings. Neither went to film school. Instead, they learned from going out and shooting a lot of bad stuff. Their first feature, Squirrel Trap, may be the perfect example. It was shot for $1,500 in the woods behind their parents' house, and their crew consisted of only three people. Their father lit the whole thing with a flashlight and a bounce board. After submitting to a ton of festivals, they were only accepted to about four or five. Things are much different now, to say the least. Small Town Crime is a sterling entry into a resurgent neo-noir genre, starring John Hawks as an alcoholic ex-cop who finds the body of a young woman and becomes hellbent on finding the killer. Much of the duo's success can be credited to the fact that they are just that, a duo. Each acts as the yin to the other's yang with different skills and different strengths, but they're able to maintain a synchronicity on set that is much appreciated by their entire crew. If you want to hear more about their approach, you should take a listen to this podcast I did with them titled Divide and Conquer, Why You Should Work with a Co-Director. I wonder, did the father also light this feature? No. He did not do that. Yes. I'm curious about where that $1,500 went. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they shot it. I remember- Squirrel training. Squirrel training, maybe? They got like accosted by a park ranger, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were uh, probably cast, I'm guessing. Yeah. Mm. And like feeding people and maybe renting yeah. a little of this or that. Well, sure. It adds yeah. up fast. True. And uh, premiering on HBO on May 21st is the final year. Uh, I chatted with director Greg Barker earlier this year upon the theatrical release of this new documentary. And he described it as a campaign film in reverse. The documentary follows Barack Obama's foreign policy team in the final 12 months of their service, and it documents a globe-trotting race against the clock as the men and women tie up loose ends, attempting to reach outstanding agreements with foreign leaders before the next president, whomever that may be, they don't know at the time, takes office. If it is a Republican, you know, it's going to change a whole lot of things and maybe put their progress that they've been making on hold. Uh, So depending on your politics, there's a good chance you will cheer when Obama's administration joins the Paris Agreement and subsequently shudder in fear upon the realization that our current administration has reversed course. So it's a very, uh, it's it's really cool just to be seeing those behind the scenes moments. And of course, I think I had mentioned uh, a few months ago when the film was opening theatrically, that it is a film that will change, the way you watch it will change depending on the current political by climate. You know, climate that we're in right now, obviously it's very uh, tough to watch because maybe you're optimistic about the past, and maybe we'll see in four in a couple of years things back on that right track. So you know, perceptions of the film may change, but it remains its own living document. <laughs> I want to give some disclaimer about how you know opinions expressed on this podcast are not the official opinions of No Film School. No, that 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 is true. That is true. But uh, yeah. And coming to theaters on May 18th is a film called How to Talk to Girls at Parties. There you go, Eric. Is this, this is a documentary. I think Eric must have written this film, if that's well, the case. Well, it's possible. So this is the latest film from provocative director John Cameron Mitchell, whose previous films include Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Short Bus, and Rabbit Hole. It debuted at Cannes last year and has since been picked up by indie stalwart A24 for distribution. It's about an alien touring the galaxy who breaks away from her group and meets two young inhabitants of the most dangerous place in the universe, the London suburb of Croydon.
Elle Fanning plays the noted alien opposite Nicole Kidman, and a human love interest is played by Alex Sharp. Emily sat down with the DP of the film, Frankie DeMarco, in France last year to discuss his work on the film and his love of experimentation within different formats. You can read that article on the site. Also coming out this Friday from A24 as well is First Reformed, which premiered at Venice last year before continuing its festival run on the North American side at Toronto and the New York Film Festival. It's the latest film from Paul Schrader, who, in addition to being the screenwriter on Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and The Last Temptation of Christ and Bringing Out the Dead, uh, he's an accomplished director in his own right. First Reform stars Ethan Hawke as Reverend Ernst Toller, a solitary middle-aged parish pastor at a small Dutch Reformed church in upstate New York on the cusp of celebrating its 250th anniversary. Once a stop on the Underground Railroad, the church is now a tourist attraction catering to a dwindling congregation eclipsed by its nearby parent church, Abundant Life, with its state-of-the-art facilities and 5,000-strong flock. When a pregnant parishioner played by Amanda Seyfried, asks Reverend Toller to counsel her husband, a radical environmentalist, the clergyman finds himself plunged into his own tormented past and equally despairing future until he finds redemption in an act of grandiose violence. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of people that have seen this film. They've told me not to watch the trailer, but I've watched it like 30 times. Uh, It just seems like some really edgy, freaky stuff goes on in this movie that it's only implying in the trailer, I think. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer actually has like a rare dramatic role in it as well. Uh, It it sounds pretty kooky and crazy, but it it comes out tomorrow. Uh, And yeah, definitely looking forward to this. It's been a long wait. It's almost nine months since it premiered. And now moving on to grant deadlines. The Pacific Pioneer Fund has a deadline on June 1st. This grant is for filmmakers based in California, Washington, or Oregon, and offers from $1,000 to $10,000 to emerging documentarians. The term emerging is intended to denote a person committed to the craft of making documentaries who has demonstrated that commitment by several years, but no more than 10, of practical film or video experience. The NEH Digital Projects for the Public has a deadline on June 6th. This is the National Endowment for the Humanities, right? That's that's what NEH stands for, and it's still around, which is great. If you have a humanities-themed project that is intended for distribution on new media, then this is definitely a grant you should check out. It's meant for projects that can be viewed on digital platforms, such as websites, mobile applications and tours, interactive touchscreens and kiosks, games, and virtual environments, whose messages can reach diverse audiences and bring the humanities to life for the American people. The program offers three levels of support for digital projects, grants for discovery projects, or early stage planning work, prototyping projects, or proof of concept development work, and production project, or and stage production and distribution work. And now for festival deadlines. On May 18th, this Friday, is the New Orleans Film Festival, uh, which, what do you say, like New Orleans, Nolans, Nolans. New Orleans, you know, mm. I, I get into this dispute a lot. I'll say New Orleans. Right? I just say no. Just say just say no. That's a great uh, abbreviation. Uh, this is the late deadline for the New Orleans Film Festival, which takes place from October 17th through the 25th, 2018. It is one of the film festivals that is Oscar qualifying in all three Academy accredited categories. That means narrative short, documentary short, and animated short. And it was recognized by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee every year since 2012. I heard this is a really fun festival, and I just feel like New Orleans in October would be kind of cool to go to. If we're not doing the whole Hawaii-Miami trip, New Orleans maybe should be on our radar. 
But what happened there before 2012? It just didn't have the same uh, didn't have the same chutzpah, you know. It just didn't. What did it play? It just played uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild every every year. Every you know? year. You know? <laughs> oh wow. And another town that would be nice to be in in October is Austin. The Austin Film Festival's deadline is May 25th, and their festival will take place from October 25th to November 1st this year. I don't think we have to convince you why Austin is a great place to be looking at potential festivals to enter your film. Now, this is different, of course, than South by Southwest, but this festival's actually been around for 25 years, and it's known as a writer's festival, particularly because accepted filmmakers also have access to Austin Film Festival Screenwriters Conference, which is the largest writers' conference in the world. It attracts groundbreaking producers, agents, managers, and development execs, as well as countless working screenwriters and filmmakers. Yeah, I'm always curious about film festivals that take place during Halloween, or that Halloween falls in the middle of that, like... Can you dress up for a day and go to some screenings? Can you do your Q&A in costume? I mean, I would do that at any festival, so. That's a good point. That is true. Irrelevant. So, now it's time. Get ready. Open your ear holes. Weekly (laughs) words of wisdom. Open your rabbit holes. Here comes John Cameron Mitchell with this week's. No. Um, So, we published a post by Jacob Bittens earlier this week called Eight Strategies for Getting Paid on Time in the Film Industry, uh, which is very important and I think it's something that's particularly relevant to many filmmakers and people working a freelance life. There's that, you know, the annoying follow-up, you know, just checking in, just circling back, sorry to bother you, just bumping up this email one more time, et cetera, et cetera, email that we all have to send at one point or another to find out where that damn check is. Um, and Jacob really dives into that, and he says, when you show up for work without any written agreement, you do so at your own risk. A lot of people, especially in the lower rungs, are afraid to advocate for themselves. They might worry about bugging the producers or getting blacklisted for being too difficult. I would argue that a producer who gets upset by your trying to be professional is likely unprofessional themselves. Treat things like this as a red flag. If a producer refuses to answer your questions, especially about the rate of pay for the day, be very cautious. A friend of mine who had been waiting for two months on a check reached out to the producer asking what was wrong, to which he replied that payment could be expected 60 days after the release of the commercial. Commercials can take months to edit, not to mention that many have specific seasonal release dates way after the shoot. So without written documentation to the contrary, it's hard to fight this no matter how ridiculous. Think about the butcher analogy. It's like telling people that you'll pay for the meat once you're done eating it. When all else fails, and this is the hard part, you've got to fight. There is an art to getting yourself paid if there seems to be an issue or delay with plenty of room for creativity. Um, and I thought this was pretty honest and, and on point just because it does always frustrate you to have to be the one who does keep following up and making you do that extra work, which is kind of unfair, but it is something that we all kind of fall into and need to keep knocking on those digital doors to make sure that you do get them paid and make sure that that is explained up front how much, when, things of that nature. And I will say that Jacob goes on in the post to give you specific strategies for how to, for example, fight or for how to write these naggy emails or for what to put in your contract. So um, it's really useful. And we will link to it in the podcast post. So shout out to Jacob for that post. And I also have lots of shout outs this week to make up for having none last week. <laughs> Woohoo! Shouting out. So first of all, I'm excited about the first one for our LA peeps. I'm speaking at a new event for aspiring filmmakers called Become. 
It's a day-long summit on June 9th in the Palms area, and it features a great lineup of speakers, networking sessions, product demos. They don't have all the info on the website yet, but I will be doing an onstage interview with the DP Hans Charles, who shot Ava DuVernay's 13th. And other speakers include producer Will Packer, who did the very popular Girls Trip. Um, It should be a lot of fun, and I'd love to meet you. So if you're in L.A. and you're around, check out the website become2018.com. Also, some congrats to members of the No Film School community. Yuki Kang's film, A Little Wisdom, won the Best Canadian Feature Documentary Award at Hot Docs last week. Woohoo! And we have a post from that film's producer called Four Production Ideas to Help Structure Your Documentary and Post, which we will also link to in the podcast post. And our friends over at Scatter won a Webby for Best Narrative Experience for their project Zero Days VR, which premiered at Sundance last year. And we have that project's director and tech director, Yasmin Alayat and Ali Zananiri, on our podcast roundtable called VR is Not Filmmaking, Here's Why. And we will also, also link to that in the podcast post. Finally, Rooftop Film's summer season is kicking off this weekend, finally, with a screening of shorts in a new venue, Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. So that should be creepy and cool. And I plan to be there. So come say boo if you see me. Now, that is a festival that does rely on the weather. That's true. Because think about it. They've already, I think, kind of thinking, well, what if it does rain this weekend as it's expected to? You know, It's like, funny. I, I was going to look it up in order to talk about that segment. It's supposed to rain on Saturday, right? This I, is Saturday night we're talking about. I think so, yeah. Now, normally yeah. Rooftop has a very robust backup option, but I don't know what they're going to do in the cemetery. Like, do we pop into various mausoleums? It's like, <laughs> exactly. it's, are you guys going? I'm not going on on Saturday. I, I, I'm not allowed to hang out in cemeteries on Saturday evenings. <laughs> I just go strictly Friday morning. Sometimes you say shit that's just so creepy, Eric. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> the subtext is whatever you take it as. John? No, I'm going camping this weekend. Oh, I hope it doesn't rain on you. Yeah, we're, we have a cabin, so kind of camping. It's like a state park cabin, so hopefully well, we'll be fine either way. Well, that sounds nice. And John, what do we have for next Monday's podcast? Next Monday is going to be part two of the post-production roundtable from Sundance. And this one is more geared towards uh, the colorists of the group. Uh, We heard from a lot of the editors in the first half. And now in the second half, we're going to hear mostly from the colorists that they worked with. So uh, pretty dedicated podcast I like when we get specific. Yeah. That'll be good. Cool. Well, for those of you I see this weekend, that'll be great. And the rest of you, uh, we're glad to have you back tweeting at us, Liam Martin. Yeah, thank Hi. you. I just want to say thank you, Liam, so much. Uh, I, I'm going to favorite that tweet. I printed it out. I'm framing <laughs> it. Uh, for I, the new office. Exactly, for the new office. I appreciate that. And if you want to get this kind of love from us, stay on touch uh, on Twitter. I'm at LizFilm. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And you can read everything we talked about in this week's podcast and the podcast post at nofilmschool.com along with new articles about the craft of filmmaking every single day. Please look for the No Film School podcast on iTunes. Subscribe, rate us, rate us high, and... uh, Buy some clothes for Chewbacca. (laughs) Yep. We're all at No Film School, and we will see you next Thursday. Au revoir.